If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. We'd like to welcome you to our study for December 21st, 2011. And it's actually Tuesday today. There was just no way I could really get the study up for this week. Um, I wasn't really ready. I've been just so bombarded with emails uh, since I've switched over to the new automated uh, list, the email thing. It's the ministry's really grown quite a bit as far as emails that are being sent out now. And um, it's generated a lot more questions, and uh, it's to the point where I can hardly keep up with it anymore. So it's hard for me to concentrate on a lot of the studies now when I'm getting so many emails. Uh, But, praise the Lord, able to get through that. Uh, This study for today has been a long time coming. And uh, what the study is entitled is the pre-tribulation rapture versus the post-tribulation rapture. What we're going to be doing is looking at the actual history of both the pre-tribulation and post-tribulation raptures first. Because I think it's very important to look at where do things originate from. As the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11, verse 3. I've had a lot of people over the years ask me, okay, where where do you stand? Now, most of you know I've always leaned toward post-trib. I've never done a study on it, though. And I guess the excuse I've used in the past is that, listen, I've never seen a more divisive issue ever in all of Christianity, among Christians. I've never seen an issue that polarizes more people and offends more people than this issue. Maybe other than Christmas. But then again, this is... The whole thing with Christmas, That, that to me, that's such a... I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer issue if you really start to critically look at Christmas, understanding the, the pagan roots and these types of things. This is not so clear-cut for a lot of people unless you start really looking at the history, and then really start doing an in-depth Bible study. And I've really just felt compelled lately that this is something that needs to happen. I know I'm going to lose a lot of listeners over this. And the thing is, is this is why I have went into such depth on this particular study. Uh, the Bible says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, It is a folly and a shame on him. So all all I'm really asking is that you listen. Now, you have to understand, I've been pre-trib for way longer than I've ever been post-trib. The whole, I mean, that's all I ever knew from from when I was saved back in 1994. And I just took it at face value, whatever the pastors were, were saying and this type of thing. And it didn't matter if I was in a charismatic church or a, or a uh, Baptist church, it, it was all, you know, pretty much they all believe. Now, I understand, now dominionism has, has entered in, and that's a whole other ball of wax, uh, which really doesn't even relate to this subject, because the demi- hardcore dominionists just believe, basically, that they're going to make things so wonderful uh, through people like Rick Warren and the emerging global church, and that Jesus is going to have no Christ 
no 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 choice but to come back and rule and reign. And the whole thing with the tribulation is really not going to. No, I'm talking about actually biblically looking at. Okay, pre versus post trib rapture. What are the histories? And then doing a very very in depth Bible study regarding the matter, critically looking at the scriptures, redundantly looking at the scriptures. And it's all here. It's 36 pages. I've been working on this now. I don't know how long. Um, the backbone of the actual post-trib verses we're looking at is from uh, Pastor Sam Adams' uh, PDF on the post-trib rapture. But what I've done is actually taken the verses that he lists and actually listed them, most of them, almost. I mean, there's a lot of redundancy in this because I, I want, if I knew if I ever did this study, I was going to really have to go. And this is going to be the most in-depth Bible study I've ever done, ever. In all of the, I don't know, it's probably about 500 plus teachings now. Four or 500, I don't really know. Uh, that I've got up on the internet. This will be the most in-depth Bible study I've ever done. And... Uh, I'm not doing this to offend anybody. I'm not doing this because I have an agenda. It's a gigantic question that comes up over and over and over again with my listeners. And it's just time. It's just time to do it. And I look at all the darkness that's enveloping the world. And particularly a lot of the draconian legislations that have just been enacted that I've reported on in recent weeks that our own government's doing. You know, where they can just basically throw you in jail now. They really don't need a reason. They really, you know, can come get you whenever they want to get you. And, uh, uh, you know, you really have no right to free speech. They can take down any internet site they wanted at this point. And I don't know how long we'll be up there. And I'm, I'm looking at so many ministries now that at one time I kind of looked up to or maybe uh, gleaned information from in realizing that they're not just deceived about certain issues. They're literally in the other camp. <laughs> They're literally on Satan's side. That's that's really becoming more and more blatantly, brutally in my face. And I'm looking at all this darkness enveloping us, and I'm thinking, we may not have a whole lot of time, and if somebody doesn't have this issue regarding pre- versus post-trib settled, or at least even if they don't have it settled, at least if they have the other, if they've only known pre-trib, if that's only been their position, and they've never even heard the other side, okay, when things start to really get bad, and they're expecting, okay, any second I'm going to be whisked away, and it, and it, it doesn't happen, well, at least they're going to be able to maybe harken back and say, yeah, you know, there really was another biblical view on this that I'm aware of, but maybe I never really looked into it like I should have, but at least, you know, even if they had this PDF, this 36-page PDF, regarding that, they, they could reference it. And, um, I think one of the most important things, again, is to look at the history of something. The history. And I'm going to get into this in detail, but I'll just start by saying, if you research this even online, you'll find out that the history of the pre-tribulation rapture theory is very recent. 
It does not go back to the early church fathers. It's not been something that's been widely taught ever up until the early 1800s, and that was by very questionable people, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the history. You research the post-trib, and it's a totally different story. It's, it's, it, it is literally historically known, and let me just, let me just uh, say a little more about that. Okay, and again, post-trib rapture. Doctrine holds that there is a resurrection rapture of the living believers in Jesus Christ at the end of the, of the church age, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Okay, That's all I'm going to say about that for now. I'm going to get into great detail on this. Historic premillennialism, which is what this view is, it is, which is what this is viewed as. The post-tribulation rapture theory is usually understood as being in line with what they call historic premillennialism. Okay. What is historic premillennialism? Historic premillennialism is the polymetric, polymetric designation adopted by its adherents, which could be more objectively called the post-tribulation premillennialism. The use of the term historic implies that this point of view is the historical view of Premillennialists. While pre-tribulation is a new theory. Historic premillennialism draws its name from the fact that the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Polycarp, uh, the Apostle John, Justin Martyr, Papias, they list a whole bunch of people here, held to this theology. This is just something that was widely believed, taught, known. From the earliest part of the church. See, to me, if that's the case, and it is the case, and here we have the pre-trib rapture being something very, very new. That by itself, that point by itself, which is historically easily verifiable, should make you question the pre-tribulation rapture. There, there are certain overriding things that, that I think when you examine anything critically that you have to look at. And to me, that's a big one. That's a really big one. So again, since the start of the church, essentially, the post-trib rapture, and again, we're going to get into all of the specifics of what that entails as this study progresses. That was what was widely believed, taught. It was like, okay, this is what we believe. It's, it's the historic position of the church. It's called historic premillennialism. The pre-trib rapture is totally different. It's a new theory. It's just cropped up in the last 1800s. And what we're going to do now is actually take a look at where did it come from. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? God is not also the author of confusion. For like 1,700 plus years, there was no confusion about this matter. Then all of a sudden, that changes. In the very time frame, moving into the end times where Jesus Christ warned over and over and over again to be not deceived... Okay, so let's start this out. 
the history of the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Perhaps a short story, a short true story of who and how and when the pre-tribulation rapture doctrines originated would be helpful for you to help those whom we know to be in denial or failing to prepare because of the Jesu- this Jesuit doctrine. Jesuit, yes, two Jesuit priests laid the foundation of the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine. They laid the foundation. I'm not saying that they were the ones that, you know, were the ones in the church propagating it, but they laid the foundation. Largely unknowingly in the history of the church prior to the Reformation, this, and we're going to get into this specifically, at the time of the Reformation, the vast majority of Protestants were convinced that the Pope was the personification of the Antichrist. Now remember, the Protestants were the one that came out of the Catholic Church. They were Protestants because they were protesting what had went on in the Catholic Church and they came out of it. Martin Luther, you know, being like the first. And then they formed their different various and sundry denominations. The Protestants were convinced that the Pope was the personification of the Antichrist. Most today now understand that the Pope is to be the second beast, the false prophet of the Antichrist Prince. Well, okay, we could argue about that all day long. That's a plausible, definitely, and I, I think that there's a very good likelihood that will happen. But I'm not going to get dogmatic and say it's got to be Pope's got to be the the false prophet. There's a very good likelihood, though. However, at the time of the Reformation, it was universally believed by all Protestants that the Roman Catholic Church was the harlot religious system of Revelation 17. Today, there is still good cause to see the Roman Church as the religious component of Babylon. This understanding that the Roman Church is the religious Babylon brought millions of believers out of the Roman Catholic religious system during the Reformation. Period. Because of how many during the Reformation saw the Roman Church as the Babylon harlot religion. It became expedient for certain Roman theologians to turn the attention of the people away from the papacy, the papacy, the Catholic Church. That's what they're always trying to do. The Catholics are always trying to put the spotlight on something else other than them. I got into a gigantic, uh, I don't know what you ever call it, debate this week with a listener who has a lot of family that are die-hard Roman Catholics. And it does not matter what I found in my dealings with Roman Catholics. It does not matter how much factual information you throw up in their face. The, 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 the legions of pedophile priesthood that have went back you know, over a thousand years now, all of the atrocities that have been committed by these pedophile priests. The 50 million plus killed during the Inquisition by this devil religion. You could go on and on and on and on. It doesn't matter to them. It's irrelevant. Their conscience has been seared with a hot iron. They are blinded by the prince of this world. They do not see. It does not matter what you tell them. that's been my experience with them for the most part. They're some of the the hardest people in the world to reach. The only one that can really do that, and this is the case for any uh, any person really, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I think the best thing you can do for those types of people, particularly if you've already tried to reach them, is pray and possibly fast. Because it is absolutely, totally demonic what you're dealing with when you deal with people in that system. Very strong devils and demons that you're dealing with. That's been my experience. Uh, and, you know, praying that their soul be saved, whatever it takes. If God has to hang that him, if God has to hang them out over hell for a, for a day or for ten minutes or whatever, whatever it takes to get them saved. <clears throat> so let's go further. So during this time of, of the uh, Reformation, it became expedient for certain Roman theologians to turn the attention of the people away from the papacy. Indeed, the Jesuits were responsible for the popularization and the propagation of the pre-tribulation rapture doctrines. The Jesuits. It was two Jesuit priests who rightly deserved the title as the founders of the pre-tribulation rapture doctrines. These two Jesuits invented a counter-interpretation to that which was held unanimously by Christians. In the entire history of the church, prior to the writings of these two Jesuit priests, virtually all Christians believe that the eminent resurrection, rapture, and return of the Lord was a single, simultaneous event happening, happening in the twinkling of an eye on the last day at the last trump. Now, again, here we have some more historical confirmation of what was widely believed. It's kind of like no-brainer, this is just the way it is. You have to ask yourself on the pre-tribulation rapture. Here's something that you should always do. Now, Pastor sent this to, said this to me one time, and I've never forgot it. There was some theory that I was a little bit confused about at the time. And I read like this 500-page book on it, written by a man. I'm not saying all books are bad, but I read it, and, you know, I was was a little bit confused regarding this thing, and he said, here's the question you have to ask yourself. If you hadn't have read that 500-page book to convince you of this particular supposedly biblical theory, would you ever be, would you be in this position where you're questioning this, would you have ever drawn that conclusion or came to that same conclusion on your own? And the person that wrote the book had to go back and and, and reference all these other authors about this particular theory that supposedly confirmed his theory. But if all you ever had was just you and the Bible and the Holy Spirit living inside you is is the... Um, as a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, would you have ever come to that conclusion on your own? And I thought about it, and I'm like, no, I wouldn't have. Well, this is the same thing with this pre-tribulation rapture. If you had never, ever been, and most likely, and I hate to say this, but the 501c3 church, corporate church of America, loves this. You look at who's promoting it. So many apostates. Over the years, people that I've done whole teachings on, exposing, they're the ones that love this theory for the most part. Not saying all of them, but a lot of them do. That's another thing that you want to look at critically. If I hadn't have ever been exposed to that and all I had was the Bible, would I have ever came to the conclusion 
that the pre-tribulation rapture, and looking at, okay, looking at all the scriptures relating to this, which we will do in depth, and I'm thinking, no, I, I would have never come to that conclusion on my own. That's something you need to do, Christian, as well. And you need to put all these preconceived notions aside and all these books that people are writing and just look at what does the Bible say, which is what we're going to attempt to do, looking at Bible verses. It becomes, at some point, at least it did to me, painfully obvious what is the truth regarding this matter. So, indeed the Jesuits were responsible for the popularization and the propagation of the pre-tribulation rapture doctrines. These two Jesuits invented a counter-interpretation to that, to that which was held by, unanimously by Christians. The entire history of the church prior to the writings of these two Jesuit priests, virtually all Christians believed that the imminent resurrection, rapture, and return of the Lord was a single, simultaneous event happening in the twinkling of an eye on the last day at the last trump. When does that occur? At the end of the tribulation. When is the last day? When is the last trump? And, and again, at the end of the tribulation. Before we expose these two Jesuits, the first concept of the rapture in connection with premillennialism was expressed in the 17th century American Puritan father and the son of, his name was Increase and Cotton Mather. They held to the idea that believers would be caught up in the air, followed by judgments on the earth, and then the millennium. The term rapture was used by Philip Doddridge and John Gill in their New Testament commentaries with the idea that believers would be caught up prior to the judgment on earth and Jesus' second coming. Okay, so there is a couple fringe people. Okay, in the 17th century, American Puritan and these other guys that mentioned this. Okay. This is the first time, though, this had been, you know, even really mentioned. Hadn't been widely ever taught by the church. This is just something brand, brand new. They're just kind of thinking about here. Okay, so for those that aren't familiar with the term premillennialism, premillennialism in Christian end times theology is the belief that Jesus will literally and physically be on earth for his millennial reign, the thousand year millennial reign of Christ, which will take place after the seven-year tribulation. Okay. Uh, this is obviously, um, Jesus will literally be in, literally and physically be on earth for his millennial reign um, after his second coming. The doctrine is called premillennialism because it holds that Jesus' physical return to earth will occur prior to the inauguration of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. It is distinct from other forms of Christian eschatology, such as postmillennialism or amillennialism. Amillennialists would believe there's no millennium. Postmillennial believe that he's coming back at the end of the thousand-year reign. Okay, again, these two are scripturally uh, easily shot apart. Which view... Uh, which view the millennial rule to, to occur either before the second coming or being figurative or non-temporal. These other two views I just mentioned. Premillennialism is largely based on a literal interpretation of Revelation 21-6 in the New Testament, which described Jesus as coming to earth and subsequent reign at the end of the apocalyptic period of tribulation. Okay, so when I say that term, then you have a little bit better idea what we're talking about here. 
Okay, so going further here. There there is at least one eighteenth century and two nineteenth century pre tribulation references. In an essay published in 1788 in Philadelphia by Baptist Morgan Edwards, which articulated the concept of the pre-tribulation rapture in his writings of the Catholic priest Emmanuel Lacunza in 1812. Okay, so Baptist Morgan Edwards articulated the concept of the pre-tribulation rapture in the writings of Catholic... and in um, I'm sorry... Baptist Morgan Edwards articulated the concept of pre-tribulation rapture, and it was also articulated in the writings of Catholic priest Emmanuel Lacunza in 1812. Now, this is where we really first start to see it. Okay, Catholic Jesuit priest Emmanuel Lacunza in 1812. And also then by John Nelson Darby in 1827. Where did he get it from now? See, I'm trying to go back all the way to the foundation of this. Not just talk about Darby, because a lot of people say, yeah, well, Darby didn't, he wasn't the one that, well, you're right, he really wasn't the one that actually originated it. Actually, Darby was post-trib, until he was convinced otherwise. And I give you a very, very detailed timeline at the end of this PDF that you can look at. I'm not going to go through that timeline. We're going to go through a timeline up to a certain point to prove to you regarding what we're talking about here. But that other detailed timeline, it goes into great depth. And you can reference that if you if you need more convincing, or if you really want to go into it further. That's part of this 36-page PDF. Okay, so this is, this is really important, because now we're re- really looking at the inception of where does the pre-trib uh, rapture come from. Uh, so the two references and basically the 1800s uh, that we're in reference to here. The main one being the writings of the Catholic priest Emmanuel Lacunza in 1812 and then by John Nelson Darby in 1827. Emmanuel Lacunza, this Jesuit priest, he lived from 1731 to 1801. Uh, he wrote under a pseudonym Juan Josephat Ben Ezira because he wanted to act like he was a Jew. He wanted to look like he was a Jew writing these things. And we're going to look at why he did that. We're going to be looking at the Jesuits' oath that they take when they're indoctrinated into this Jesuit cult. It is horrific. The things they swear to do in this Catholic indoctrination oath. Horrific. And it would make total sense as to why he wrote under a pen name or a false name Juan Joseph at Benazira, acting like he was a Jew, when he, in fact he was a Jesuit Catholic priest. Emmanuel Lacunza, a Jesuit priest, writing under the pseudonym Juan Joseph at Benazira, wrote an apocalyptic work entitled The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty. What he wrote. No, to understand the evil that the, that the Jesuits vow to propagate under blessing under the blessing of their mother whore, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, please go to the last article in this PDF to read the actual documented oath they all take. Let's go ahead and just do that now.
Okay, so I'm going to segue now. We're going to go to some of these. I'm going to read you the, the big part of these oaths. And then we're going to come back to this. So we can kind of get a little bit of an idea of what type of people the Jesuits are. And what they swear to do and what they swear to uphold. So I'm going to scan way down here. Okay, the Jesuit Oath of Induction. This is recorded in the Congressional Record of the of uh, the United States House Bill 1523, contested election case of Eugene C. Bonnewell against uh, Thos S. Butler, February 15, 1913, pages 3215 to 3216. It can also be found in the book entitled Subterranean Rome by Charles Didier, translated from the French and published in New York in 1843. Okay, so this is what, what we're citing, this Jesuit Oath of Induction. Now, I'm going to just try to read you the high points here. A lot of it gets into, okay, what do they do? They stand on one side of the monk, and they do this, and they hold this banner, and they make this sign. Okay, this is where this uh, Jesuit superior, he, ju- he then, then thus addresses the postulant, the, the person wanting to be inducted into the Jesuits. The superior speaks, and he says, My son... Here too, you have been taught to act the dissembler among Roman Catholics, to be a Roman Catholic, and to be a spy even among your own brethren, to believe no man and to trust no man. Among the reformers, you are to be a reformer. Among the Huguenots, to be a Huguenot. Among the Calvinists, to be a Calvinist. Among other Protestants, generally to be a Protestant, and obtaining their confidence to seek even to preach from their pulpits and to denounce with all vehemence in your nature our holy religion and the Pope. And even to descend so low as to become a Jew among Jews. What did he do? What did this guy do? He wrote under this pen name as a Jew to infiltrate the Catholic Church, or infiltrate the Christian Church. That you might be enabled to gather together all information for the benefit of your order as the faithful soldier of the Pope. Now, this is just the first paragraph. We're just getting rolling here. (laughs) You see a problem with this? They're called, in the first line, to act as a dissembler. To somebody that goes in, to a Roman Catholic, you're you're a good Roman Catholic. To uh, a spy among your own brethren. Trust no man. Among reformers to be a reformer. Among a Calvinist to be a Calvinist. Infiltrate, 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 and lie and lie and lie to even denounce the Catholic Church. They'll go so far as to even denounce what they believe the holy religion and the Pope, and to even descend so low as to become a Jew of Jews among Jews. That's what it says that you might be enabled to gather together all information for the benefit of your order as the faithful soldier of the Pope. Now, if that's not evil, and if that's not unbiblical, I really don't know what is. I see, I mean, I, I see a lot of Bible verses from Jesus telling us to go around and spy on, on each other and to infiltrate. And No, what it actually reminds me of is like in Jude, you know, where it talks about where certain men crept in unawares that were, were before ordained under this condemnation to spy out your liberty. To infiltrate, Galatians talks a lot about that, about the Jews that came out to spy out your liberty and to bring you back into bondage. 
wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, they, they look like a sheep, but they're a wolf. If Satan can be transformed into an angel of light, it's no marvel that his ministers can be transformed into ministers of righteousness. They appear as ministers of righteousness. So this is something the Bible warns about over and over and over again. And here we see an oath where they're flat out swearing to do this. This is kind of like where the rubber really meets the road. Now, let's go to the second paragraph. You have been taught to insidiously plant the seeds of jealousy and hatred between communities, provinces, states that were at peace, and incite them to deeds of blood involving them in war with each other and to create revolutions and civil wars in countries that were independent and prosperous, cultivating the arts and the sciences of enjoying the blessings of peace. Now, if you remember the article I sent out recently on the sister um, Catherine, the nun, and her her testimony, and she mysteriously disappeared two years after she gave that, because the Catholic Church couldn't have her around, talking about this, the, the whores of the Catholic Church that she went through as a nun, there was some links in that teaching, you can go back to continuefortruth.com, uh, Chicory, he wrote a book, I don't know, 50 years in the Catholic Church or something like that. And there's other books. You can click on the links there if you want to know more about how they orchestrate wars and do this and all the manner of evil the Jesuits do. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, going further, I'm going now with this... uh, uh, create revolutions and civil wars in countries that were independent and prosperous, cultivating the arts and the sciences and enjoying the blessings of peace. In other words, these... You want, to, you want to cultivate revolutions and civil wars in countries that were independent, prosperous, they were cultivating the arts, sciences, and they were enjoying the blessings of peace. The Catholic Church can't have peace. No, they, they don't want that. They want evil. They want evil because they are of their father, the devil, and of his lusts, and of his works, they will do. Simple as that. They're pure evil. And then it goes on to say, to take sides with the combatants and to act secretly with your brother Jesuit, who might be engaged on the other side. Wow, it sounds like politics. Democrat, Republican, they're just two sides of the same rotten coin. Same with the Jesuits. They might have one guy on this side and one guy on that side, and they look like they're really going at it, and they're good buddies behind closed doors. They give each other the old Jesuit handshake. Or maybe the strong grip of the lion's paw. Maybe they get a little bit of everything in there. I don't know. A little Masonic, Freemasonic handshake. When and behind closed doors. But they put on a show for the public. And I'm sure can be some of the most convincing people on the planet. Okay. So... Let me just read that last sentence again. To take sides with the combatants and to act secretly with your brother Jesuit, who might be engaged on the other side, but openly opposed to that which you might be connected. Only that the church might be the gainer in the end, the Catholic Church. And in conditions fixed in the treaties for peace, and that the end justifies the means. Oh, that's so biblical. The ends justify the means. Go out, kill, slaughter, lie, steal, do every single thing Jesus Christ said not to do. Why? Because the ends justify the means. As long as it benefits the Pope and the Vatican and the Catholic Church, that's all that matters. Wow, that's so biblical. Like I told that lady this week that we were engaged with the Catholic 
I said, what wonderful fruit. The pedophile priesthood alone. I mean, you must be just so proud. I didn't say that, but seriously. I mean, what wonderful fruit. And it's like, oh, that doesn't matter. It's the mother church. Mother of harlots. Mother whore church. Anyway, going further with the oath, you have been taught your duty as a spy to gather all statistics, facts, and information in your power from every source to ingratiate yourself into the confidence of the family circle of Protestants and heretics of every class and character, as well as that of the merchant, the banker, the lawyer, among the schools and universities and parliaments and in legislatures and in judiciaries, the councils of state, and to be all things to all men for the Pope's sake, whose servants we are unto death. Are you believing this? Wow. Now, just understand, this oath is still the same today. They're still doing the same things today. Do you know how infiltrated they are into the pseudo-Christian church? 501c3 Corporate Church of America alone? We have no idea. I don't even have an idea. Only God really knows. I'm going skipping forward a little bit. You must serve the proper time as the instrument and the executioner as directed by your superiors. For none can command here who has not consecrated his labors with the blood of the heretic. Why? For, quote, without the shedding of blood, no man can be saved. What does that mean? That means basically what I get out of it. Well, no, let me just read the next line. Therefore, to fit yourself for your work and make your own salvation sure, you will, in addition to the former oath of obedience to your order and allegiance to the Pope, repeat after me. Now, what did the, what did the one line basically say? It basically sounds to me like you've got to go out and kill people. You've got to go out and kill heretics to make your own salvation sure. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there, no man can be saved, as they say in this thing. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. Essentially, remission of sin. They were in reference to Jesus Christ there, whose blood paid it all. Okay? It's not talking about going out and killing people so that you can get saved. This is how sick and twisted this cult is. And it's a cult in every sense of the word. And I take extreme pleasure in exposing that. I really do. The extreme oath of the Jesuits. Now you have to repeat after me. Okay, they said all that to say this. Okay. Um, I blank, you know, insert Mr. Jesuit's name. Now in the presence of Almighty God, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Blessed Michael the Archangel, the Blessed St. John the Baptist, the Holy Apostle, St. Peter, St. Paul, and all the saints in the sacred hosts of heaven, and to you, my ghostly father, the Superior General of the Society of Jesus, founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, Loyola, who was, I believe, the first Jesuit, in the pontificate of Paul III, and the continued to be present, do by the womb of the Virgin, the matrix of God, and the rod of Jesus Christ, declare and swear that His Holiness the Pope is Christ, Vice-Regent, 
and is the true and the only head of the Catholic or universal church throughout the earth. And that by virtue of the keys of binding and loosing, giving to his holiness by my Savior Jesus Christ, they actually have the nerve to say that part. By Savior Jesus Christ. He hath power to dispose heretical kings, princes, states, commonwealths, and governments, all being illegal without his sacred confirmation, and that they may be safely destroyed. Therefore, to the utmost of my power, I shall and will defend the doctrines of his holiness, meaning the Pope, right and custom against all usurpers of the heretical or Protestant authority, whatever, uh, whatever, especially the Lutherans of Germany, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and now the pretended authority and churches of England and Scotland, and branches of the same now established in Ireland and the continent of America and elsewhere. Now, they might have modified this thing by now to reflect more modern-day enemies of the Catholic Church. This was, remember, this was a long time ago that this Jesuit oath was recorded in Congress. So going further, uh, and all adherents in regard that they be usurped and heretical, opposing the sacred mother, Church of Rome, I do now renounce and disown any allegiance as due to any heretical king, prince, or state named Protestants or liberals, or obedience to any laws, magistrates, or officers. I further declare that the doctrine of the churches of England and Scotland, of the Calvinists, the Huguenots, and other names, and the other name of Protestants or liberals to be damnable, and they themselves damned who will not forsake the same. Going further... I do further declare that I will help assist and advise all or any of his holiness agents in any place wherever I shall be. In Switzerland, Germany, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, blah, blah, blah. Or any kingdom or territory I shall come to and to the uttermost to expatriate the heretical Protestants or the liberal doctrines and to destroy all their pretended powers, regal or otherwise. I do further promise and declare that notwithstanding I am dispensed with to assume my religion heretical for the propaganda of the Mother Church's interest. In other words, I can say the Catholic Church is heresy as long as it's propagating the Mother Church's interests. They're infiltrating. They're spying. They're befriending. They're evil. Uh, and to keep secret and private all her agents' counsels from time to time as they may entrust me and not to divulge directly or indirectly by word, writing, or circumstance, whatever, but to execute all that shall be proposed, given in charge or discovered unto me by you, my ghostly father. I, I love that part, the ghostly father. I really love that part. That, I mean, did they eat like, um, was that Booberry cereal? Where they have like the ghost? Is, is, isn't he, is Booberry a ghost? What's that? He is? He's a ghost? No, he's not. I don't know. It's Count Chocolate and Frankenberry and there's Booberry and cereal. I don't know. That, maybe they eat that. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Just a little light humor there. Uh, but anyway, uh, by you, my ghostly father, or any sacred covenant, I do further promise and declare that I will have no opinion or will of my own or any mental reservation whatsoever. Yeah, you, you would have pretty had much checked out mentally a long time ago to get to this point. Uh, I will have uh, no opinion or will of my own or any mental reservation whatsoever, even as a corpse or cadaver. Okay. Uh, but will 
unhesitantly obey each and every command that I may receive from my superiors in the militia of the Pope and of Jesus Christ, and that I may go to any part of the world whithersoever I may be sent, to the frozen regions of the north, to the burning sands of the desert of Africa, to the jungles of India, to the centers of civilization of Europe, uh, and all this other stuff. I furthermore promise and declare that I will, when opportunity present and make wage, relentless war, secretly and openly against all heretics, Protestants, and liberals, as I am directed to do so, to expatriate and to exterminate them from the face of the whole earth, and that I will spare neither age, sex, or condition, that I will hang, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up their stomachs and wombs of their women, and crush their infants' heads against the walls, in order to annihilate forever their ex- this execrable race, that when the same cannot be done openly... I will secretly use the poison cup, the strangulation cord, the steel of the poignard, or the leaden bullet, regardless of honor, rank, dignity, or authority of the person or persons, whatever may be their condition in life, either public or private, as I at any time may be directed so to do by the agent of the Pope or the superior of the Brotherhood of the Holy Faith of the Society of Jesus. I'm not making this stuff up. They're that evil. Now, if you don't know about this, how would you ever know not to pray? You could say, well, why are you bringing all this stuff up? Don't you think this is something we might want to pray about? This is evil. I'm, I've been praying more lately that God's, for God's justice and judgment in this earth against wickedness. That the wickedness be judged and justice come and God's truth come out about these things. So that they're not able to go around in dark places and get away with this. Whether it be people like this or the pedophiles or whoever else. Of course, these guys are right in league with that as well. I mean, the Catholic priesthood pretty much goes along with pedophilia. So they can do whatever they want in any particular way. And notice that when this cannot be done openly, it says... Well, see, during the Inquisition, when they killed at least 50 million plus people, tortured and all these, and and there's no Bible, obviously, for any of that. See, they were at such a point of power then where they could just do it openly. What are you going to do about it? But when the Catholic Church loses enough power where they can't openly go and do this in a society, they'll do it privately. Because they're like cockroaches, and, and, and they, they, if they can get away with something openly, they'll do it. But if they got to do it in secret, they'll do it in secret. It doesn't really matter. They'll just they'll morph to fit whatever time frame or country or, or whatever they can get away with, they will do. But as I've said before, there's going to come a day when, and I, I really believe it's going to coincide then with the one world religion of Antichrist, and the Catholic Church, from an infrastructure standpoint, is the most set up to pull all the fake, garbage, pagan religions under her banner, and will do so. Then it's going to go back to the same way it was during the Inquisitions. And this is why the Bible talks about, you know, the persecution of the body of Christ, you know, during that time. It's going to go back to that way. This whore devil religion hasn't changed a bit. But 
what the Catholic Church can get away with at a given time frame is dependent on how much acceptance there is for what this devil religion is doing. And through the whole line, signs, and wonders, and miracles of the Antichrist and the false prophet, and you see, the, the Catholic Church already has that going anyway with all their, their garbage uh, marrying apparitions and all of their line, signs, and wonders that they propagate and that attracts people to this. And now there's charismatic, charismatic Catholics. As more people are attracted to that, knowing that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to deceive the whole world through miracles, lying signs and wonders, these types of things. The Catholic Church is per- perfectly positioned to feed into that system because they've already got it. Let's go further. In confirmation of which, I hereby dedicate my life and soul and all my corporal powers and this dagger which I now receive. I will subscribe my name written in my own blood in testimony thereof. And should I prove false or weaken in my determination, may my brethren and fellow soldiers of the militia of the Pope cut off my hands and my feet and my throat from ear to ear, my belly open and sulfur burned therein. And all the punishment that can be inflicted upon me on earth and my soul be tortured by demons in the eternal hell forever. Yeah, that's what they... Kind of a nice, light-hearted little oath. You know? I saw this on the, this oath on the box, box of Cracker Jacks the other day. I got, you know? No, just kidding. Teasing. But yeah, um, it really reminds me a lot of the, of the Freemasonic oaths. You know, they're very, very similar. Having, you know, my brain exposed to the seagulls or whatever and my feet flayed and me walking on the desert sands of the Sahara, whatever they say. I've, I've went over some of the oaths of the Freemasons too. They're fun. I mean, they're fun. you got, you got to admit these are fun guys. I mean, if, if nothing else, we can't take that away from them. I mean, fun is their middle name. I mean, no, these guys are evil. And you have to understand, when you take an oath like this, the Bible says, swear not. We're not supposed to be taking oaths like this. What's happening to the person as he's taking the oath? Well, it's adopted demon time. Ah, let all these Catholic Jesuit type religious spirits enter into me and make me seven times the child of hell I was before I took the oath. This is why people that, that go up in the Masonic ranks, the further they go up, the much higher the likelihood that they're going to become a pedophile. I've heard people give testimonies about that. About a Bill Schneblin did when he was in the lower ranks that, you know, that was one thing. But when he got up into the really higher ranks, all of a sudden he started having, like, thoughts about pedophilia with little kids and stuff that he never, ever, ever had before. Where did those thoughts come from? Huh. Well, you take oaths like this it's just like going to, it's just, it's witchcraft. It's just like going to basically Satan's feet and saying, possess me, Satan. Possess me with your devils. Possess me with your demons. I swear allegiance to you. And he'll do it. That's exactly what's going on here. Just so you know, that's a whole other aspect of this that I think is important to mention. And then I'm just going to say this last paragraph. Um, uh, all of which I enter your name, do swear by the Blessed Trinity and Blessed Sacraments, which I am now to receive, to perform on my part, to keep inviolable, 
And you call all the heavenly and glorious host of heaven to witness the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. And witness the same further with my name written and with the point of this dagger dipped in my own blood and sealed in the face of this holy covenant. He receives the wafer from the superior and writes his name with the point of his dagger dipped in his own blood taken from over his heart. So it's a blood ritual. It's, you name it, it's bad. And then it goes on to to actually, then the superior speaks, and that's all I'm going to go over. And then they ask him a series of questions and answers. So that's at the very end of this 36, 37-page PDF. Now, we're going to go back to where we left off. So, knowing what I just said, okay, about the good old Jesuits, hopefully you have a little deeper appreciation of what we're talking about with the pre-tribulation rapture and its at its inception. In the 1800s, the writings of Catholic priest Emmanuel Lacunza in 1812, um, he was a Jesuit priest who wrote under the pseudonym of Juan Josephat Benazira, wrote an apocalyptic work entitled The Coming of the Messiah in the Glory of His Majesty. This is where one of the first places where we really start to see the pre-tribulation rapture propagated. The book, um, now this book first appeared in 1811, The Coming of the Messiah and Glory and Majesty, written by Emmanuel Lacunza, Jesuit priest. First appeared in 1811, ten years after his death, uh, which was ten years after his death. Okay, In 1827, it was translated into English by the Scottish minister Edward Irving who, because of Lacunza, was the man that more fully developed the concept of the pre-tribulation rapture while not yet using the exact word rapture. Remember, this is in its infancy here. So where does this really start and really, really, really get rolling? Jesuit priest, Emmanuel Lacunza, wrote under the pen name, to make himself look like a Jew, Juan Joseph at Benazira writes The Coming of the Messiah in Glory of Majesty. He dies. Ten years after his death, in 1827, it's translated into English by Scottish minister Edward Irving, who lived from 1792 to 1834, who, because of Lacunza, was the man that more fully developed the concept of the pre-tribulation rapture, while not yet using the exact word rapture. I repeated that because this is, this is really where we see this starting to get ramped up. This is the beginning Edward Irving is generally regarded as the main figure behind the foundation of the Catholic Apostolic Church. He was listed as, as a Scottish minister, but he was the main figure behind the foundation of the Catholic Apostolic Church. Why would I trust this guy? He takes a Jesuit priest writing who writes under a false name to make everybody think he's a Jew. He translates his book and this same guy is generally regarded historically as the main figure behind the foundation of the Catholic Apostolic Church. So we got two Catholics now who are getting the pre-tribulation rapture thing going here. Now, going further, Dr. Samuel Pridex Tregelis, who lived from 1813 to 1875, was a prominent English theologian and biblical scholar. He wrote a pamphlet in 1866 tracing the concept of the rapture through the works of John Darby back to Edward Irving. 
Okay, now that was a guy back in the day that did it. He's like, okay, where did this start from? Well, he wrote a pamphlet in 1866, tracing the rapture through John Darby back to Edward Irving. Well, who did Edward Irving? Who, who was, who, where did he get it from? Who obviously was heavily influenced by Emmanuel Lacunza, the Jesuit priest, by the fact that Irving went so far as to translate his Jesuit book promoting the pre-tribulation rapture into English. And he was the guy that was the, um, founder of the Catholic Apostolic Church. Edward Irving. Uh, not exactly the kind of foundation I want to see as a born-again Bible-believing Christian regarding some theory I'm going to believe and stake, uh, you know, put all my eggs in that basket. Not looking good so far. Well, again, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I've already proved that the foundation was corrupt. The foundation's very recent in regard to history, which would make me question it right there alone. I mean, oh, I guess the early church fathers had no wisdom regarding this matter. They were all wrong. Oh, no, no, it's only when we get into the, the end times where Jesus Christ warned us, be not deceived, and all these cults that started popping up in the 1800s, which had a lot to do with this as well, as we'll see, that's when, those are the theories we really want to believe, because they had it all wrong for all those hundreds and hundreds of years before. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Irving then, being, then began to teach the idea of a two-phase return of Christ. The first phase being to seek a secret rapture prior to the rise of Antichrist. According to Irving, now remember, this is the guy that translated the book from the Jesuit, the Catholic Jesuit, According to Irving, there are three gatherings. First of the first fruits of the harvest. The wise virgins who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Next, the abundant harvest gathered afterwards by God. And lastly, the assembling of the wicked for punishment. Remember, this theory was just getting cranked up. But this is where it originated from. Backtracking even further, it was another Jesuit priest named Francisco Ribera, who lived from 1537 to 1591, now we're going back even further to another Jesuit priest who, in the days of the Reformation, first taught the basic ideas of the pre-tribulation rapture. So here's, here's another one. Just putting the revealing of the Antichrist way off in the future was a very effective way of taking the heat off the Catholic papacy during the Reformation. You get it? They're trying to take the heat off the Catholic Church. During the Reformation. To counter the Christian popular interpretation, end times eschatology, the Roman Catholic Jesuit Francisco Ribera wrote a 500 page commentary on the book of Revelation. Now, this was back in the 1500s. Okay? To counter the Christian popular interpretation of end times eschatology, this devil, Roman Catholic, again Jesuit, happens to be another Jesuit. Now, you see, not all priests are Jesuits. Most aren't. This is a specific sect of, like, you know, Navy SEALs for the devil in the Catholic Church. Black Berets, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, whatever you want to call them. This is like the special forces of the Catholic Church. These are the guys that are the most sold out to Satan probably on planet Earth, or one of them. So this was done to counter 
this book that he wrote, this 500-page book that uh, Jesuit Francisco Ribeiro wrote, was a 500-page commentary on the book of Revelation in the 1500s. This commentary established the corrupted Catholic futuristic interpretation of Bible prophecy. Then, the previously mentioned Jesuit Emmanuel Lacunza built on Ribeiro's teachings. So let me say that again. It established the corrupt, corrupt Catholic futuristic interpretation of the Bible, and then the previously mentioned Jesuit, Emmanuel Lacunza, okay, who wrote under the Jewish pen name, so everybody thinks he's a Jew, who had his book republished by Edward ten years after his death, who then went on to, to influence John Darby and everyone else. Emmanuel Lacunza built on this, on Ribera's teachings, and wrote a book called The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty. That's the book that Irving translated 10 years after his death. Okay, so I'm being mega redundant here because I think it's important we really drive these points home. And again, there'll be this 36, 37-page PDF uh, in regard to the teaching for December 21st, 2011. You can always go back and reference pre-trib versus post-trib, okay, and you can print it out, well, it's going to be hard to print out because there's a lot of highlighting I did and probably burn up a lot of printers, but save it in your computer, whatever, you can reference it, you can go over it again, hopefully I'm being redundant enough so you understand the connections here, probably being too redundant, but I don't want to leave anything a chance here. So, um... This Jesuit Emmanuel Lacunza, who wrote The Coming of the Messiah in Glory, built on the first Jesuit's, Ribera's teachings, that, of the 500-page commentary in the book of Revelation that he wrote. Okay. True to Jesuit style and stealth, Lacunza knew the Protestants were not going to widely receive a book written by a Jesuit priest, because nobody trusted them. The Jesuit Lacunza, therefore, wrote his book under the assumed name of Rabbi Ben Ezira. He even said rabbi. If you look the guy up online, I mean, it's, it's very easy to verify this. Why, why would a Jesuit priest, if he didn't care about deceiving people, write as a rabbi? <laughs> Who they would view, and you even heard in their Jesuit oath of induction, the extreme oath of induction, that if you even have to, the lowest thing you can do is to appear as a Jew among Jews. That was the worst thing you could have done as a Jesuit. And he went so far as to do that and to maintain that facade in his writings. Think about that. This fictitious Rabbi Benazira was presented in Lacunza's book as a scholarly Jewish rabbi who had accepted Christ as his Savior. Even more deception now, we see. So the, the devil acted like not only was he a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, but that he was a Jewish rabbi who had accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? Because you read that, and, and let's say he starts out the book that way, and you think, your, your, your defenses automatically come down. This is a guy, wow, the Bible says Jesus Christ came to his own and his own received him not, meaning Jews. 
And then the Bible goes on to say, blindness in part is happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Well, you would think, wow, well, this is one of those in part people. This, one of these in part Jews that actually got saved. Who hadn't been blinded. Oh, praise the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a big total lie. And after, again, hearkening back to the old Jesuit oath that we just read, you know that they have no problem and encourage their fellow Jesuits to do this exact very thing that we're talking about right now. So going further, by this ploy, the Jesuit Lacunza was able to get his book to have a good reception in the Christian world. No Christians in the Reformation era would have allowed a copy of the coming of the Messiah in glory and majesty, which is the book Lacunza wrote, the Jesuit priest. No Christian would have allowed this book in their homes if they had the idea that the book was written by a Jesuit. That's why they lie. They lie like rugs. Matthew 16.11 says, How is it that you do not understand that I spake it, not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what Jesus Christ said. Beware of their doctrine. Well, this is bad doctrine coming from like Satan's mouth himself. The Jesuit priesthood. Two different Jesuits. And then another guy, another Catholic, who started the Catholic, Catholic Apostolic Movement, was credited for that, that Scottish minister, Irving, then he takes it and translates it into English. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of foundation I want to see if I'm going to, you know, believe it. <laughs> That's pretty much an understatement, obviously. Because Lacunza presented the book as written by a scholarly Jewish rabbi who had become a Christian believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew the Protestants would thus love and receive his Jesuit book. The Jesuits certainly have not gotten less subtle, and it does not seem the church has gotten more discerning. Lacunza's book, The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty, I mean, look at the title, you know? It doesn't sound like a Catholic work. Oh, what a title. Oh, it's a Jewish rabbi who got saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. Satan's good at what he does. I'm not, I don't, I'm not giving him praise. I'm just saying he's, he's, he's adept at what he does. He's, and he's adept at how he uses his minions. So, Lacunza's book, The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty, was a very successful, elaborate deception. In his book, Lacunza taught the new idea that Jesus returns twice in two second comings. The Jesuit Lacunza was the first in all history to teach two second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lacunza taught that at the first stage of his return, he raptures his church so that they can escape the reign of the future Antichrist. His book was first published in Spanish in the year 1812. As was stated earlier, shortly after Lacunza's book was published, Leader, uh, the leader in the England by the name of Edward Irving discovered Lacunza's book. Again, Edward Irving is generally regarded as the main figure behind the foundation of the Catholic Apostolic Church. Reverend Irving was so impressed by this book that he studied Castilian for the sole purpose of translating it into English. Castilian must have been the original language that it was written in. 
Um, and in 1827, his two-volume translation was published under the title of The Coming of Messiah. The book rapidly achieved cult status in the 19th century. Early leaders among the Millerites, these are different sects of supposed Christianity, early leaders among the Millerites appealed to Lacunza's work as a forerunner of their own message. So Lacunza's work may be viewed as giving rise to such groups such as the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah Witnesses, and heirs, uh, the heirs of the Millerites. See, all these cults that we see today, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, they all had their corrupt beginnings in cultic beliefs in the 1800s. Also, this is where we start to get our first mass distribution of the false modern-day Bibles, particularly in 1881, when two occultists translated the revised version, which were basically totally derived from two corrupt Catholic manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. Again, Catholic, 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 over and over again. All of this infiltration. Look at the fruit. Oh, wow, all these cults come as a result of this. Originally, that's the only ones that would really touch it. And then it infiltrated itself into the modern-day Christian church. Not exactly the kind of auspicious beginnings I would want to see if I was going to buy into something like this. Okay, so going further then. So, Edward Irving translated Lacunza's book in English in 1827, the Encyclopedia Britannica, Volume 12, 1966 issue, pages 648 to 649, describe Edward Irving and the controversy over his teachings in Scotland and England in the early 1800s. By saying he began to teach the specific term, the rapture of the church, after a young Scottish girl named Margaret MacDonald went into a trance and described a vision in which she saw the saints leaving the earth at the return of the Lord before the tribulation. So here's here's more heresy upon more heresy upon more heresy. And this is what the majority of, of Christians today are hanging their hat on and totally expecting is going to happen at any moment? Look at the foundation. Look at the the humble beginnings. I'm sorry, but this is what this is what happened. If you research the pre-tribulation rapture, this is what happened. Some 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 lady named Margaret McDonald went into a trance and described a vision in which she saw the saints leaving the earth and returning to the Lord Jesus Christ before the tribulation. Her trance and vision took place in the spring of 1830. While living in Port Glasgow, Scotland, her quote revelation was recorded in a book written by R. N. Norton and printed in London in 1861. All of this now is being melded into what we know now today as the modern day pre-tribulation rapture theory. This is where it all started. I could end the teaching right now, and hopefully you've heard enough to greatly question. But we're, we're just getting started. We're just, I don't even know how long this teaching is going to take. I know, I, I don't know. I, I want to put all of these parts up at once. And, like, have that cover last week's teachings and this next week's teachings 
totally cover it because this is going to take me a long time to get through in depth, particularly the Bible study. But I'm going to go ahead and end part one now, and we're going to talk about the progression of it now, going into now John Nelson Darby, which a lot of people say they just blame it on Darby. No, 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 no. I took you back way further than Darby already. We've already looked at the post-tribulation rapture a little bit. Historic premillennialism, which was what they widely, the early church widely accepted as truth. Now all of a sudden in the 1800s, and we have the foundation with these Jesuit Catholic priests. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to believe them though. And all of this craziness and all these heretical people bringing this about. I mean, whoa, this is bad, bad red flags popping up. Next we're going to talk about John Nelson Darby. So we're going to go ahead and part one here. We'll go to part two next. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you on part two. Scott Johnson's weekly audios are available for free 24-7 on the internet at contendingfortruth.com. That's C-O-N-T-E-N-D-I-N-G-F-O-R-T-R-U-T-H.com. Please help us continue this work. To support this ministry, our mailing address is Scott Johnson, 2nd Line, 450 Conover, C-O-N-O-V-E-R, Boulevard West, number 202, 3rd Line, Conover, North Carolina, 28613. Or on the internet, PayPal can be used at contendingfortruth.com. Thank you, and may the Lord Jesus Christ richly bless you.